Well, hello, ladies, and welcome to Psalm 127. And this I want to ask of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, i got to get comfortable, you know. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 127, and chapter 8 in our Discipline of Grace book lists verse 1 as its reference. This small chapter, consisting of five verses, is considered a wisdom psalm, or is often referred to as a didactic psalm, which is an instructional psalm to give guidance to an individual or to a group of people. It is also a psalm of ascent, the eighth of 15 psalms of ascent, which includes Psalms 120 through 134. Four of these are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. Now, ascent means going up or elevate, and these psalms were chanted or sung by entire families as they made their pilgrimage ascending to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God their Father three times a year, and these were usually done during the pilgrim festivals. The author is believed to be Solomon, though some think that David may have written this to instruct his son. However, the general consensus is that Solomon is the author, and he's the author of one other psalm that we know of, Psalm 72. And we know that David had written many psalms. Well, similarities in writing clearly associate the writer of Ecclesiastes with the writer of this psalm. The word vain is written three times in the first two verses. You think of Ecclesiastes where it says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Though they are not the same word, there is a similarity between them. Some see a concealed or a vague reference to Solomon with the word beloved in verse 2. It was a personal name of Jedidiah given to Solomon by God through Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12, 25. And Jedidiah means beloved of Jehovah. However, beloved includes God's children, all of God's children. And we are referred to in scripture many times as his beloved, which includes you and me. Romans 1, 7 says to all who are beloved by God, called as saints. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4 says, Paul, giving thanks to God, commending the Thessalonians when he writes, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. And then again, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul gives thanks to God for them, beloved by the Lord. So we're all included in that, beloved. Yet with all of Solomon's wisdom, the lessons from this psalm were relevant to a king, a builder, an overseer of a city, of cities, a husband and father. They were most likely lost on him. Kidner said that his building, both literal and figuratively, became reckless as his kingdom was a ruin and his marriages were a disastrous denial of God. And we can read about that in 1 Kings 11. Well, as sad as that is, Let's read what Solomon wrote through the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and see what God has to say to us through this psalm. So if you have your Bibles, 
Turn to Psalm 127 and follow along as I read. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Well, Kidner says that the first two verses are contrasting the attitudes toward God, those of dependence or independence, and, rival, and the rival merits of toil versus sleep. So let's proceed. Let's look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, house can mean temple, which some have speculated, but more likely it is a house, a dwelling, or a building. Kidner also says that three of our most universal preoccupations is building, security, and raising a family. And that is what our passage addresses today. Note, the verse does not say that the Lord helps build the house. No, he builds it. You know, building requires an architect and blueprint and a builder, and Christ is all of these. Our job is simply to do the task before us, but not without the Lord. <clears throat> he needs to be in all of our thoughts, everything we say, and all that we do. You know, John 15, 5 says that apart from God, we can do nothing. And I might add that apart from him, we are nothing. God does not do the work for us, but he enables us to do the work. If any undertakes a project such as building in their own strength and wisdom, it will ultimately fail and prove pointless. God says it is, van it is vain, which means empty, futile, and meaningless to presume to do anything apart from the Lord. You know, many, if not most people, rush into their business projects and affairs and even their daily decisions without consulting or even considering the Lord. Who are these people who go through life without a thought of God? Well, they are those who do not have a true knowledge of and understanding of and belief that God in eternity past set his love upon us. Then he made provision for our sins by sending his only son to pay the penalty for our sin. You know, Jesus willingly stepped down from the glories of heaven and condescended to earth, took on human flesh, and lived 33 years in perfect obedience and submission to his father, and then went to the cross to die in our place, taking our sins in his own body, having nailed them to the cross, so that we might be declared righteous. I think Bridges said that we are declared innocent in the courts of heaven and righteous in the sight of God. And I like Spurgeon, this quote, and I'm sure you all know it. You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Through repentance and faith, one comes into a right relationship with God because of the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, we have at our disposal the ability and the power to trust and rest in the love of God, knowing that we belong to Him. And that is not true for the unbeliever. Our verse says that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You know, we as believers too at times are guilty of not consulting or even thinking about what God would have us do. So we need to make this verse a heart check about the plans that we undertake. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this in his commentary on Psalm 127. Benjamin Franklin, an American statesman, was not a Christian, but a deist, though he appreciated George Whitfield, the Calvinist evangelist. He addressed the convention for forming a constitution for the United States in 1787. He understood the futility of work without God and in part said this, and this is Benjamin Franklin, I have lived long enough, 81 years, and the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall proceed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Even Benjamin Franklin understood God's role in the building of a nation, and in this case, America. So whether we're building a house, a city, a nation, or a family, unless God is the builder, we labor in vain. Solomon continues, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. You know, we all know that our safety and security ultimately lies in God's hands and nothing can thwart his plan or interfere with the work of his people. But it is necessary for us to keep watch and to be on guard against the enemy. In the church, we're commanded to be on guard, watching for wolves in sheep's clothing and false teachers. In 1 John, Tom's going through that with us to know how to discern between truth and error, false teachers and genuine teachers. <clears throat> so, oh, so we know that's our safety. So we need to know what God tells us, what's a false teacher, how to identify that, and what is as a genuine teacher of the Lord. God gives us counsel and guidance as how to guard and protect the fight against such imposters in his church. And he even commands us to be on guard so that the church is protected. Yet we do it according to his will and provision. Paul told Timothy to guard what has been entrusted to you in 1 Timothy 6.2. And then this goes for a city. And Jerry Bridges talked about Nehemiah in our chapter. We see Nehemiah and the workers work to rebuild the city and the walls of Jerusalem. And here's an example of what our attitude and approach to building and guarding should be. Nehemiah, when he heard about the situation of his people, the Jews in Jerusalem, was grieved deeply. He went to the Lord in prayer for months, pleading God's loving kindness, confessing sin, acknowledged God's righteous judgment, and asked for success. His desires and efforts were bathed in prayer, 
And when the time came, which was God's time, King Artaxerxes inquired about the cupbearer's countenance. Nehemiah told the king what had happened to his people. When the king asked, what is your request? Nehemiah, after praying these long months, whispered a prayer to the God of heaven in that instance. I just want to pause here and ask, how often do we seek the Lord in our everyday lives? You know, there have been times, and I'm sure it's been true of you too, when we didn't know what to do or how to respond to a situation or an inquiry. I know too and am reminded in this study to whisper a quick prayer for wisdom and for the right words and insight as to what to say or how to respond. You know, and that should be the habit of our lives, to not only seek God in lengthy and private prayer, but also spontaneous prayer as well. It's an indication of our heart and focus. Is God continually before me? Well, in Nehemiah's account, he went to build the wall with God's permission and provision from the king. He encouraged the people with these words, the good hand of my God was on me, or the hand of my God has been favorable to me, and the God of heaven will give us success. Not only did he pursue God initially, but he kept him before himself and the people, aware that God was building and guarding the city. And even though he knew it was all God, he still equipped himself and his men with building tools and materials in one hand and weapons to ward off any opposition in the other, doing all in the strength and the sanction of the Lord. And therein is our example. We are to do the work, provide protection, all the while knowing it is the Lord's work and blessing. Well, believers understand that without the Lord, our building, our guiding, and all our efforts are in vain. We are to do all that we know to do, but in dependence upon and in the strength of the Lord. God has given us the responsibility to work just as he worked in creating the world in six days, and his work never ceased. It continues to this day. Boyce said that part of what God does is work in, with, and through those who are working for him and in his name. We might not always think this, but labor is a good thing. It allows us to provide for our families, to share our wealth, and there's the admonition that he who does not work, neither does he eat. You know, God does not make our work unnecessary, but he makes it effective. So whether it's a building, a city, a church, or a family, as we will see later, we still put forth the effort guarding what he has purposed. But it is God who honors our efforts if done in his strength. Verse 2 goes on to say, It is vain for one to rise up early, retire late, and eat the bread of painful labor. Our work is not to exceed what God would have us do. Staying up late, rising early, Depriving oneself of food and rest to get ahead is not his intent or will. And this is not relying upon the Lord. He will have his way, no matter our efforts, but in the work, God must be acknowledged and honored. Burning the candle at both ends will not accomplish any more than God intends without consequences, but can be a test to see our commitment to what we profess. Do I believe his promises and commands, and am I confident of God's sovereignty to oversee all that concerns me? And this is where the rubber meets the road. 
I believe, but do I act upon what I profess? Now that is an exercise that takes discipline and an examination of oneself as to faith, trust, and dependence. You know, the tendency is for us to run ahead of ourselves in the Lord when we see something that needs to get done. I'm sure you've all done that. I know I have. <clears throat> Rather than pause and seek God's face, we run headlong into an activity, our activity, without even a thought of God's desires, not intentionally being disobedient, but perhaps from habit or just an effort to get the job done. It's an indication of how much of the Lord we keep before us and in our hearts. We need to ask ourselves, is he continually on my mind? Is my heart to honor and obey him? Is the pursuit of holiness prevalent in my life? Do I consult him with every detail of my life? Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9 says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. My heart is glad and my, joy, my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You know, there is a confidence in knowing that because we elevate God to his rightful place in our lives, no matter what happens, we know that ultimately the results rest in his hands. I can have peace and rejoice that my protector and defender is by my side, and in the process of all my efforts, I will dwell securely, and his will will be done. Now, if that is not our mindset, we need to make a point of putting Christ on the throne of our hearts, consulting him in all we do, no matter how trivial or how large, to seek his face. And these consultations don't have to be lengthy, but often an upward focus that asks for guidance and direction is an acknowledgement of his presence and his influence. And then don't neglect to listen to that still, small voice, having an eye towards the God of heaven. And if you have no clear impression, move forward as you think he would approve. And if obstacles occur, then think to know who those are from, whether it's from him or another. Moving forward cautiously and carefully can sometimes lead you to where you need to be and help you accomplish the task, but you can be assured that if he has your ear, is in your thoughts and prayers, and your will aligns with his, you won't be out of his will. Rising up early and retiring late really is not the issue. It's the reason for an intention is that kind of intensity in work often leads to eating the bread of painful labors. In other words, sorrowful labor brings no joy, only a drive to perhaps gain wealth, to succeed, to have power. Sorrowful labor is mired down in one's troubles and pursuits, overwhelmed and rehashing and mulling them over and over in one's mind. We're to do our work heartily for the Lord, yes, but not to the extent where we exhaust and deprive ourselves of needed food and rest in our efforts to get ahead or just to get as much done in a day as possible apart from the Lord. Often in the mix, we not only deprive ourselves but our families as well as they are no longer our priority, but the work is. By denying our bodies the necessary sustenance, we deplete the resources to do all that God calls us to do. Plus, we're denying God's work in our lives and in the project we undertake. 
and the efforts that we think they require. Spurgeon said, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it only empties today of its strength. <clears throat> and then the sweetest promise is that last sentence, that in the midst of all of our worry and struggles, God gives to his beloved even in their sleep. His work never ceases. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4 says, The one who watches over us will neither slumber nor sleep. So whatever was left undone or needs yet to be done, if it's important in God's agenda, can be accomplished through him even while we sleep, if he so chooses. You know, the promise of sleep is a huge and needful blessing that many of us lack because of worry. Matthew 6, 34 tells us, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then God cautions us, even commands us, <clears throat> to, not to carry the privilege or responsibility of work and of our daily lives to the extent where we fret and worry, often to the point of exhaustion of both mind and body. Ecclesiastes says that labor and work are a gift from the Lord and that God has so ordained it that man enjoys the fruit of his labor, not forgetting from whom it came. Well, naturally, if this is a struggle or care in your life, Philippians 4 commands us to rejoice always. And then it says to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will what? Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, that's a supernatural guarding of the peace that comes only from our Lord Jesus. Tom mentioned at the end of one of his revelation messages a couple weeks ago, he said, why do we worry when we know what the end is? Why do we worry? We know what the end's going to be. In this psalm, we are told that the Lord does the building, the guarding, and gives sleep. He knows the outcome of all of our endeavors and the ultimate end. He is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, loving and caring for his beloved. So, why do we worry? You know, I used to think that worry was noble. It showed that I cared. I was so wrong. It revealed that I was not trusting God. I was sinning. When I became a believer, those Philippian verses were the first that I memorized. And my worrying and futile efforts would not change the outcome of what was consuming me because all was in the Lord's hands and control. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? To further expand on this, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 6. We're going to read 25 through 34. So follow along as I read. <clears throat> Matthew 6, 25-34 For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? 
And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? <clears throat> Do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. <clears throat> Does this not reinforce that our work and all-encompassing efforts should not be to store up treasures here on earth? That is what Psalm 127 is essentially saying, that unless you keep the presence of the Lord in his work and care continually before you, the emphasis of, your, emphasis of your work, rising early, retiring late, eating the bread of your fruitless labor produces nothing of value that the Lord has not already promised. It warns us that our work should be a blessing and not a burden that we endure. Look at verse 26. The birds of the air, they do not sow or reap nor gather into barns, yet God provides for them. The lilies of the field are adorned more beautifully than Solomon yet they do not toil or spin. Fretting with what we should put on, what we shall eat and drink, the extreme effort invested is frivolous in light of God's promises and his watch care over us. God provides amply. Have you ever lacked a need in your life, a real need that God did not supply in some way? Maybe it wasn't how you expected, but nevertheless, he took care of you. We have only to trust and be content with his provision. And on top of all that, we cannot, with all of our worrying, lying awake and striving, add an hour or a cubit to our lives. Psalm 139, 16 tells us, And in thy book they were written, all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one. <clears throat> so with the essentials of living, food, clothing, shelter, and life itself, God tells us not to worry. Instead, we should rather trust him, storing up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. But seek his righteousness first, and all these things will be added unto you in verse 33. We are to invest in eternity, not waste the little time that we have here on earth with striving after wind or pursuing futile things apart from the Lord that result in anguish and distress. And I might add that we are speaking primarily of secular work here, it seems, but this reminder applies also to ministry as well. We can be so consumed with serving God and his people that we find ourselves in the same boat as those above, seeking to build where God may not bless, worrying, losing sleep. Only serving God is more noble, and our efforts and worry are more acceptable because of what we do. So we seek to justify our sin. I read where we may get tired in God's work, but we do not get tired of God's work, as the Lord gives us the strength to work and the rest we need. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, The sleep of the working man is pleasant. 
When verse 2 says that God gives to his beloved even in his sleep, most translations say only sleep. God gives to his beloved sleep. This is a gift from the Lord to bless and refresh our minds and rejuvenate our bodies to carry on the task before us. And after a long, hard day, Mark tells us that Jesus fell asleep in the boat during a raging storm. He entrusted himself to his Father and pursued the rest that his body needed despite the surrounding circumstances. David in Psalm 4.8 says that in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. In other words, David was able to sleep despite his enemy's pursuit of him because of the confidence and the peace that was his in the Lord. And so it is with us. Nothing should keep us from getting the necessary sleep that will enable us to function and carry on the work that God has for us, whether it's providing for and caring for family, whether we're entrenched in business affairs or ministry, whatever it is that God has placed before us. As his beloved, he gives us sleep. And my translation says he gives even in his sleep. You know, a young pastor's wife told me recently that there have been times when her husband, in preparing his message, struggled with how to interpret and present a certain passage, uncertain as to how he was going to, to present this as he went to bed. <clears throat> she said that when he awakened, it had become clear to him as to how to approach and preach that message that had troubled him. I believe that God works in mysterious ways and can give even in our sleep. He can work in such a way as to solve and remedy issues that have been problematic or obstacles in certain circumstances, even while we sleep. Indeed, sleep is a gift from the Lord that we should take advantage of and thank the Lord for. Exhausting oneself to accomplish a project to the extent of having no resources left because we were doing it our way instead of God's way is what God is talking about here. His promise in verse 3 is that to his beloved, he gives sleep. And my version said, in his sleep. Well, the poor man's Old Testament commentary says this. Solomon points to the necessity of looking steadfastly and continually to God for his blessing upon every concern. Whether builder, soldier, or watchman, anxiety, care, and worry will never improve with exertion. Ecclesiastes 9.11, the first part, says, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the warrior. God told Zerubbabel concerning his rebuilding of the temple that the work would be done, but not by my power, not by, not by might or power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We see that in Zechariah 4.6. How much of what we pour into our lives and energy in, our energy into is useless, at least inside light of eternity? And that might be a good examination of our lives and motives to see just what it is that we do that has eternal significance. Ask yourself, what is the purpose, the intent, and the extent of our labor and toil? Why are we doing it? And for whom? You've all heard of the t-shirt that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. But on the back it says, but he dies nevertheless. Both physical and mental toil are part of a fallen world in Genesis 3. But doing God's work is nourishment 
not punishment. One commentator wrote that work suited to our gifts and personalities is food for our souls, but the anxious laborer eats the bread of sorrow, sorrow as he works and worries about the next day and then tries to sleep. <clears throat> God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, according to 1 Timothy 6.17, so don't fix our hope on riches, but on God, and this includes earning our daily bread. You know, a man should be at his best always, recognizing that his self-exertion and efforts are only valued when they are seen as loyalty and service to God. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the question is not, what does man think about my efforts, but what does God think? And then we come to the second stanza of our passage where Solomon says in verse 3, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. This is God's assessment of what children are, contrary to the world's perspective today. And these are gifts that far surpass any toil, labor, wealth, or stri striving after may accomplish. We read in Psalm 128.3 where the wife is like the fruitful vine and the children like olive plants around a table. Here is a picture of happiness and fulfillment for those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways, enjoying the fruit of one's labor. Then he goes on to say that like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Likening children to arrows <clears throat> indicates a protection or a defense that children bring their parents when they are old. Thus, the children of one's youth suggest that having children young gives them time and opportunity to establish themselves such that when the need arises, they will be able to assist their elderly parents. And as the psalmist says, they may face their enemies in the gate, which was a place of business in the ancient world. It was a place where men gathered to transact business deals or settle affairs. And think of Boaz and his plan to redeem Ruth. That was done in the gate. One com several commentaries made this statement. Having a plethora of sons behind you could intimidate an enemy. So I tried to picture this in the modern day. So you think of an elderly couple or an elderly man standing in front of an opponent or an opposition, maybe even a court, and how intimidating that can be, but then behind him stands his children. And you think they're there for strength and support of their father, and they could even intimidate the opponent. I had one son that said, well, my three girls will be no use. <laughs> of no use. <clears throat> the hope is that children will be raised in such a way as to honor their parents, to show compassion for them, and to influence the world where they will work and live. Arrows are straight and strong and intended to fly to their destination. Each child and family are intended to be used by God to impact the world that he is building. Stability and strength originate with the family, and strong families make for strong cities and strong churches and nations. So we should raise our children in such a way that they will go forth from their quiver and do the Lord's work wherever that may be. And as most of you know, raising children is work. And while God is in charge of their souls, it is our responsibility to invest in their lives, 
building a family. And there's that word building refers back to verse 1, only in the Lord's strength. Well, the night before Trevor and Haley left for the mission field, God had called them to. I was having a hard time knowing I would not see them or our grandchildren, five at that time. There are now six. But I would not see them for many years. And Trevor said to me very gently, Mom, the Bible speaks of a man's quiver being full of arrows. If they are to serve the Lord and share the gospel, do you think they will be most effective if they remain in the quiver? And I said, yes. (laughs) Not really. But he continued, like an arrow, they are to go forth to where the Lord leads to do his work. And that gave me a perspective that was very comforting that night and continues to be now these days. So whether there is one or ten arrows in your husband's quiver, no matter where the Lord calls them, whether it's in the neighborhood or across the world, it is the godly parents' desire that they go where God calls to do his work, just as you train them, straight to the mark of their calling. And if there are no arrows in one's quiver or no quiver in your life, there are spiritual children you may have influenced that can have the same impact and even offer similar protection. If our children belong to the Lord, they will go where God wants to use them, and they in turn can change hearts, influence lives, and impact societies that can change the world. And that is one way that they offer protection for their parents and others. Well, our Lord Jesus began his life as a carpenter, building, and then he chose 12 men to begin building his kingdom. And that work continues to this day through the church that he established in Acts. You know, we read in Hebrews that Abraham was looking for a heavenly city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. This passage speaks speaks of building and laboring for the highest calling and the work that goes on to this day. And we as living stones are to be building, furthering the kingdom of God here on earth. We are instructed to use the gift of children to build a family and home, and that in turn will build a church, a city, and from there a nation. And who knows how God will work when we're building, guarding, and raising children and families to his glory. When we stand before the Lord, will we be ashamed of the efforts poured we poured into life, neglecting God's hand in it, pursuing that which has no eternal significance, Let us be in the business of building God's kingdom and raise our children and grandchildren to not only build but guard the kingdom he is building here on earth by establishing families that strengthens churches, cities, and nations in the name of our Lord Jesus. Well, you may ask, I believe all that, Penny, but how exactly do I rely upon and trust God through life? I believe him, and I know he is sovereign, but... Well, let me share a couple things. Choose to remember the things which God has done. He chose you in eternity past. He sent his son to die in your place, to save you, to redeem you. He has preserved his word for your instruction and given you the Holy Spirit to protect, to teach, to comfort, to convict, and so on. 
He provides all your needs and blesses you immeasurably. Just think about this week, the things that we take for granted and how he meets our needs and very many of our wants. Psalm 19 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse declares the work of his hands. Look around at the beauty that surrounds us and how we take for granted the wonderful works that he has done. Consider all that God has done in your life and then take the time to count the blessings, your blessings from him. I like Psalm 103. You read that and you'll learn more of what God has done. So remember his works and then rely on his power for his power is perfected in our weaknesses, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Think of the many ways God's power is on display in the weather, the rain that we had, the thunderstorms, the lightning bolts, in creation when he spoke the world into existence, the supernatural power when, that was displayed when Joshua was before Jericho as he learned to trust God's battle plans. What about when he separated the waters for the Israelites as they were fleeing the Egyptians to pass through on dry land? How about his calming the wind and the water? Hebrews 1.3 speaks of Jesus upholding all things by the power of his word. And then there is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. So much more. Paul tells us that God's power exceeds and surpasses everything. His is unimaginable power as we see in scripture and in our own lives if we look closely. You know, he dwells in splendor and majesty. And Job is a good place to go and look to see who our God is, what he knows, and what he controls. He knows the storehouses of the snow and the hail. He has set a boundary for the oceans and the seas that they don't pass over. He's ordered the rising and the setting of the sun. Isaiah 40 verse 12 speaks of God as he's measuring the waters in the hollow of his hand. And he's marked off the heavens by a span. Isaiah 43 tells us to not fear, for he is with us. There's Psalm 104. All of these builds our faith in whom it is we worship. So these things, ladies, the works of God and the power of God we need to dwell on. So when our faith wavers or we doubt his ability to help us in life or when we just need more confidence to trust him more fully and then pray. The discipline of prayer is a vital part of relying, relying upon our Lord Jesus. So we pray in Luke 11, thy will be done. Matthew 7 says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you if we are praying in his name. Talk to the Lord about all that concerns you, even your fears and your doubts. He knows it all anyway. Ask him to help you to rely and wait upon him since he wants you to trust and depend upon him. Jerry Bridges' focus was holiness through discipline and dependence upon the Lord, and he cited Paul learning to be content in whatever circumstances he was in. And this is an example of the discipline needed to depend upon the Lord in all things. What we examined above are principles that lead to holiness if we depend upon God when we build, in guarding, in raising our families, and in all of our labor. 
we need to discipline ourselves to be holy since he has called us to be holy, relying upon God's sovereign control over every aspect and detail of our lives. In conclusion, this chapter encourages us to trust, depend, rely, and rest in God and his work in us, to be surrendered to his will, aligning our will with his. Boyce wrote that work, guarding, or whatever we do without the Lord is frustration but satisfaction if with the Lord. God will build and guard and use us as his instruments, only we do not want to go beyond what he provides or intends, staying within the perimeters of our limited abilities and his will, and to enjoy the rest and the sleep that he gives to his beloved so that we may continue the work of building his kingdom through our children and families and whatever else he calls us to do. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Sovereign Father, we desire to honor you with our lives, with the work that we are called to do, and by raising children to make strong families built with the strength that you give. Help us, Lord, to trust and rely upon you to not overstep that which you have ordained and to find peace and rest in the sleep that you give to your beloved. And thank you for making us yours and for the love and sacrifice that allows us to be called your children. May our lives testify of your goodness, power, and love that encom encompasses us every moment. Keep us firm within the grasp of your will and might our love and our aim be to please you, all because you first loved us. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.